turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. And while you're turning there, let me just remind us as we come to uh, the book of Hebrews that this is really a sermon. Uh, in, in Hebrews 13.22, the author says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, my, my sermon to you. And, and he's definitely been preaching a sermon and laying out his point. Uh, but especially since chapters 5, 6, and 7, he's been really digging deeper, not only showing the difference between Old Testament worship and New Testament worship, but how Jesus is our better high priest, how the Old Testament sacrifices were not enough, but instead Christ's sacrifice is, is the one that the Old Testament was pointing to. And uh, But now, as we come to chapter 10, verse 19, we're, we're sort of transitioning to application in this book. And so let us give attention as we read God's Word this morning. Please uh, follow along with me. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, your word this morning. And we thank you, God, that the things that you have spoken to us, the great truths that you have laid out about Christ, uh, Lord, are things that, that impact the way that we, we live our lives. And we pray that we would give attention to these things and not, not just heed them, but, Lord, walk according to them. We thank you and pray these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I heard a, a person say this week that they had heard a sermon where the pastor asked the question, why do you want to go to heaven? Now, notice he doesn't ask who wants to go to heaven or do you want to go to heaven? I mean, I think that's a much easier question. And I think most people would say, yes, I want to go to heaven. But he asked the question, why? Really getting at what is the motive of you as a believer for wanting to go to heaven? And the pastor, after he asked that question, he made the comment that most people want to go to heaven just so that they can avoid going to hell. In other words, who would want to go and spend eternity in the lake of fire under God's judgment rather than spend all eternity with Him in, in heaven? But what's interesting, the pastor said, is, is that rarely uh, do people say that the reason that they want to go to heaven is to be with God, to be with my God, to enjoy the intimate fellowship with Him. That, that I, I, I so enjoy uh, the fellowship with God in worship like today, or whether it's in my quiet time with the Lord each day, the prayers that I have with Him, that I just can't wait to be with Him. That's oftentimes not the answer. Well, if, if that's true, it makes you wonder if the reason that most people are not excited about heaven is that maybe they're not excited, not excited about God in their lives right now, 
that maybe they don't desire so much to be with him. Their hearts are set upon other things or that are um, that they desire. They don't really know God. I um, read a while back, and I've read so many different Puritan books between now and then. I can't remember which one I read it in or which Puritan said it, and or even the exact quote. But the gist of it was basically this. That if we don't love the Lord now and seek to spend time with Him now, what makes us think that when we get to heaven there's going to be a switch that's going to be flipped and we want to do so then? Um, and I, as I hear that, that's, that's convicting. That's, that's challenging. To, to say, where, where is my heart? What, what, what do I desire? Do I desire the Lord? Do I desire Him so much that I, I would gladly face death just so that I could be with Jesus? Just so that, rather than worshiping Him from a distance, that I could stand in His presence with the saints above and to worship Him. You see, the Christian life is one of drawing closer to a person daily. That is, closer to God. Until one day, we get to spend all eternity with Him. Now, maybe not every person is like that. I, I, I'm sure that there are people who love the Lord very much, and, and I'm sure you are those people who seek to draw closer to Him and to know Him. But there may even be those that as much as they want to draw closer to the Lord each day, uh, they also realize that God is holy and they are sinners and sinful. And that sometimes causes fear and trepidation in terms of them drawing closer to the Lord. I mean, think about um, even in the Bible, we read a number of situations where people, as they saw Jesus for who He was, sort of, sort of drew back and sort of overwhelmed them of how great He was. And one of the examples I think of is in Mark chapter four, where Jesus and the disciples were crossing the lake. Remember that? And it says that a great windstorm arose, and Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat, and the waves were so high and coming in that they were beginning to swamp the boat. And the disciples woke Jesus up and they said, Teacher, do you not care that we will perish? And what does Jesus do? Remember that, kids? He stood up and he said, Peace, be still. And immediately everything was calm. And then he looked to his disciples and he said, Why are you so afraid? And it says, he says, Have you no faith? And they were filled with great fear. Now, I think the thing that's interesting is that you see the disciples, they're fearing the storm, but then when they see who Jesus is and the great power He has, that they then fear Him because He's so great. Another example is Isaiah 6 where Isaiah sees the vision of God in the temple with the angels worshiping Him. And what does Isaiah says? He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. You see, it's so easy to say that we want to be near to God, but but, but do we? And I know for, for Jewish folks, um, the idea of drawing near to God, you see that somewhat in David's writings where he seeks and he desires the Lord. But also there was a sense in which there was sort of a distance between God's people and, and Him because He was so great. But regardless of how we view things, the reality is God wants to draw near to us. Uh, he wants to be with His people forever and ever. 
Uh, we, we see that in, in passages like Ezekiel 37, verse 27, where God says to his people, My dwelling, this is God speaking, My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's what God desires, is to dwell with his people. Do you realize that this morning? Do you realize that that is the heart's desire? And we see that in Scripture. I mean, from the time that the Scripture opens to the time it closes. In Genesis, what do we see? God dwelling with His people in the garden. God walking with them in the cool of the day. Yes, sin entered into the picture, and God dealt with that sin, and that's what we see in Scripture. But at the close of the Bible, what do we see? Once again, God dwelling with His people and drawing near to Him. So God wants to be with us. He wants to draw near to His people. And if you look at our text today, you, you see an admonition to the writer of Hebrews telling them to draw near to God. Look at verse 22. He said, let us draw near. And I want us to, and I, I believe that that is the theme of this text that we see here this morning. And so I want us to look at three things about drawing near to God. First of all, I want us to look at the reason or why it is that we can draw near to God. Uh, second of all, how? What is the posture? What is the attitude that we are to have as we draw near to God and come into His presence? And third of all, just a couple of considerations about uh, drawing near to God. So first of all, why should we draw near to God? If God is holy and we are not, why should we attempt to draw near to Him? What are the grounds that we have by which to draw near to God. And, and what the writer does in verses 19 through 21 is he just begins to recap the things that he has said before. And he uses uh, a couple of statements that have the word since. Since this is true, then, okay, and the first place we see that is in verse 19. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So the first ground or the first reason that we can enter into the presence of God is because we have a better sacrifice. Uh, we can enter the holy place. That's not the earthly tent that we're reading about in our Old Testament reading. Uh, but it is in heaven itself, into the presence of God. Because Christ's death was better than the animal sacrifices um, that it dealt with sin once and for all. I mean, I don't know if you think about this. But I hope this is one thing that sort of stood out to you as we've gone through the book of Hebrews, that in the Old Testament, the animal sacrifices were done over and over and over and over. And how many times did Jesus have to die? Once. Because it worked. The Old Testament sacrifice showed us that it did not accomplish what it sought to. But Christ's death did. It is a better sacrifice. And we read in verse 20 that Christ's death has opened the way for us to come to God. It says, By the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. Now what the author is doing here is borrowing the imagery from the Old Testament uh, tabernacle and the curtain that stood between the holy place and the holy of holies. And when Jesus gave His life upon the cross, that curtain was torn in two, giving us access to God, providing open access to God through Christ. Now, it's interesting that the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. He could go through that curtain, but he could only do so once a year and only with the blood of the animals. And it only allowed him to enter into there briefly. But Jesus' blood 
allows everyone who believes in him to enter the veil permanently. Uh, you're most likely probably thinking of what Jesus said in John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except what? Through me. And it's only through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way to God, into the holy place, into the presence of God. And the author says that we have that confidence to, to enter that, that holy place. But we also can enter in because, as verse 21 says, we have a better priest. Not only a better sacrifice, but a better priest. And that's where we see the next sense statement. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now, in the Old Testament, the priest was over the house of God, which meant that they were over the tabernacle, or later on they were over the temple. But when the writer says that Jesus is the priest over the house of God, He's talking about God's people. It's now no longer tied to one location, but it is He dwells with His people. Look back, if you would, at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6, um, where the writer uh, speaks about Christ. And he said, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house. He says, If indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope, we are his house. Wherever God's people are, that's where God's house is. And that's why Paul in writing to the Corinthians he wanted them to know this. Uh, he says in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So Jesus not only opens the way for us and secures the way for us to come into God's presence, but Jesus is there himself. Uh, he is there as our priest, representing us and, and pleading effectually for our acceptance before God. Because our high priest is there, we can know that we belong there too, and thus we can approach God with, with confidence. So we have a ground and a basis for doing what is unthinkable. I mean, I think we just take it for granted that we can come this morning and we can come into the presence of God and we can worship Him. But if, like I said, if you think about a Jewish person, especially these Jewish Christians, as they were hearing that for the first time, that had to shock them. Because for years they had most likely watched from afar as the priest had gone in and done the ministry. And now the writer of this book is saying, but you... You have that access. You can go straight into the presence of God. We can draw near to God because of what Christ has done so wonderfully to pave the way. Amen? Now, what is the posture in which we ought to come into His presence with confidence? Well, we well, <laughs> I just gave it away. How should we come in? We should come in with confidence. That's the first point. As we see in verse 19, He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence... Now, uh, he's referring, once again, back to what he said earlier. Only this time from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, where he had said, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. It's, it's not just that you can go into God's presence, but there is a manner in which we are to go. You can go in fully confident that not only can you be there, but that you belong there. I don't know if you, you think about that. But we ought 
to be. We, we belong to be there in God's presence. That's why He saved us. Not just so that one day we can be there when we get to heaven in glory, but even now we have access to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ. And as I said, to, to appreciate this, you have to think about where the Old Testament believers are coming from. I think many times they approach God with fear and trepidation, and you could understand why. I mean, if they read of Moses, who saw the burning bush, and he was in the presence of God, what did God say, kids, to Moses when he saw that burning bush? The Lord said, take off your sandals, for the place in which you are is holy ground. Or what about Nadab and Abihu? As they thought that they didn't need to listen to God, but they could worship Him in the way that they thought would be the right way to worship. And they offered unholy fire. What did the Lord do? He consumed them and He killed them because of their rebellion. Or what about Uzzah, the man who put out his hand to steady the ark when the oxen stumbled and the cart shifted and he didn't want the ark to fall? And what happened? God struck him dead. But as believers, we have confidence to draw near to God. And the confidence that we are called to be there is, is very different than the confidence that we might think of. When we think about worldly confidence, we think about someone who is self-assured, someone who says, I'm awesome, someone who says, you ought to be very thankful that you know me. Now, that might be a little uh, uh, over the top to say that. You may think nobody would ever say that. But in many business schools, that's what they teach now. That when you go in for interviews, you need to be confident. You need to sell yourself. You need to let them know who you are and, and so that they can appreciate you. But that's not the idea of Christian confidence. Christian confidence is confidence or assurance with humility. Christian confidence is not something that we have with what is inside of us, but actually Christian confidence is external. Worldly confidence is all about who we are and our abilities and our accomplishments, but biblical confidence is all about who Christ is and what He has done. And so when we draw near to God, our confidence comes from outside of ourselves in what Christ has done. Now, where the sort of the rubber meets the road is so when you draw near to God in prayer or you draw near to Him in the reading of His Word, as you do uh, each day, uh, I'm sure there's times when you have encountered, when, as you sought to do that, Satan is right there. He's right there to flood your minds with all the sins that you have committed. And he says something like this to you. What? Who do you think you are to think that you're good enough to come before God in prayer? Or you're here you are acting so religious, and yet the other day, do you know what you said to so-and-so? Or do you know how you treated your brother and sister? And yet now you think that you're going to be religious and you're going to try to come before God? And the reality is, is that we can have that confidence as we come, not because of the confidence that's within us, but the confidence that comes from outside of us through Jesus Christ. And we can say, yes, Satan, you are right. But I come confidently this morning because of what Christ has done for me. He has cleansed me by His blood. And so, as we draw near to God, there is a sense in which our focus is outside of us and external. But there's also a sense in which, uh, through Christ, there is a focus, an internal focus as well. And that is with the second point of why we should draw near to God. We should do so with full assurance 
of the state of our heart. The full assurance of the state of our heart. Uh, verses 22, uh, verse 22. N notice what he says in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. And then he describes something about the heart. He says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, when you walk into the presence of God to draw near to Him, you are not only looking outward at what Christ has done, but also inwardly at what He has done. He has sprinkled you clean with the blood of Jesus Christ. Here again, the author is referring to the Old Testament where the priest would sprinkle the blood of the animals on the people. And so Christ's blood has been sprinkled on your heart to renew you. You are not the same person you were before coming to faith in, in Jesus Christ. You are a new person. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And so we can come into his presence with great confidence, uh, but also a sense of assurance that our hearts have been washed. Now, the author also uh, lays out here the idea of our bodies being washed. And some commentators see this as a reference to baptism. But baptism by itself is only an external act objectively experienced. And that's why I think that uh, John Calvin is right in his comments about this, where he says that the point of this is not baptism itself, but what baptism symbolizes, the spiritual renewal that is the work of the Holy Spirit in regenerating a new person and making them alive. Uh, and Calvin, in, in, in sort of uh, addressing that and sort of proving his point, directs us to Ezekiel 36. If you look at Ezekiel 36, 25, Ezekiel quoted the Lord and he said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And so we have that confidence and we have that assurance to draw near to God because of what he has done both externally and internally within us. And so let not Satan discourage you, brothers and sisters, as you fellowship with the Lord, as you commune with him, as he seeks to, to, to browbeat you. Uh, all of that has been addressed by Christ. Now what are some things that we need to keep in mind as we draw near to God? If we're going to, to draw near to the Lord, there's, there's two exhortations that he gives us here to, to obey. Um, if you remember earlier in Hebrews, especially around chapters 5 and chapter 6, the writer spoke of perseverance and, and, and not falling away from the faith. And he said, you know, so if you're a person who draws near to God, uh, these are something that you need to consider, that you might stand firm and keep on track. Um, all of us, I'm sure, have known people who have fallen away. Those people who once were in the church, those who profess faith in Christ, but no longer do so. Um, I think one thing to keep in mind is that no one thinks that they're going to lose their way. No one, as they uh, worship the Lord, as they profess faith in Christ, ever think that they will turn their backs on the faith. And yet people do. 
And so uh, how, how do you address that? Well, he, he gives us two things to keep in mind here. First, in verse 23, to make sure that your doctrine or your theology is right. But second of all, in verses 24 and 25, uh, to, to remind us that we need to walk together in community as the body of Christ. And it's not just that we do one or the other, but that we do both. You know, I find that, that there's many Christians who prefer one or the other. Some people are like, theology, I love theology, it's great. And they'll spend hours reading books and devouring things about theology. But, but church community, not so much so. But then there are others who do the opposite as well. And, and so as we uh, look here, the author is saying, uh, though, if you're going to stay the course, you need to have theology, both your theology straight and be with people in community in church. So let's look at these. First of all, to make sure your doctrine is right. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now the confession of our hope is a reference to the substance of, of our faith. It is what we believe as, as Christians. All around the world, Christians publicly profess the content of the, of the Christian faith. Some Christians as we prayed about this morning, are being persecuted because of that. But So it's not just true, truly what I believe is true, but it is what the Bible reveals. It is the doctrinal theological deposit of what God's Word teaches. And what the author is saying is, don't let that go. The, the implication here is, is that you will be challenged to let your confession go, to question what it is that you believe. But he says, know what the Bible teaches and hang on to it. If you're going to stay the course in the Christian life, you have to have your theology straight. Now, the reality is a lot of people hear the word theology or doctrine and they just roll their eyes. Oh, so tedious. So boring. So irrelevant. You know, shouldn't we be busy with loving people and telling people about Jesus, not talking about something like doctrine that, that divides? And, and part of that is, is that people have all kinds of perception about the role of theology. And some people think it's, it's negative. Maybe they've been in a church where the church is focused primarily uh, on theology to the exclusion of everything else. And so there's not been the application of that theology in the lives of those believers. And so there's not been love. There's not been a passion for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they think that the only way to stop all the fighting is to get rid of the theology which is a false premise. But I think another reason why people oftentimes are, are so prone to think negatively about theology is they have bought into the spirit of the age. You see, we live in a culture that repeatedly tells us that what matters not is absolute truth. That's not what matters, is absolute truth. What matters is your own subjective experience and feelings. And, and with that being the case, theology and doctrine is not just irrelevant, it actually is an enemy. It is something that you should oppose because, you know, the world is sending this message to us all the time. You know, truth doesn't matter because you make it up anyway, right? Truth is truth to you. Truth doesn't matter because it's all subjective and relative to each person. So you don't have to go on a quest to know what truth is and believe because what matters is feeling your way to God. It's, it's about what feels right to you. It's not about this external truth. 
And so and many have bought into that. But the author says if you're going to waver, if you're not going to waver, but stay the course, you need to know what you believe, and not only that, but also live that out. You see, these were Christians who were struggling in their faith. They were questioning Christ. They were questioning whether they ought to return to the Old Testament sacrifices. Um, and like the Hebrew Christians, you and I are being bombarded with every reason to get up what we believe. And I don't need to give you examples because you live with it every day. I, whether it's at school, whether it's at work, whether it's with your neighbors, in every part of your life, I would guess you are being challenged about your faith. You hear people say things like, you believe that? Or, I can't believe you said that. That's so offensive to me. Or, you are so narrow-minded. I can't believe you're so hateful. We hear those things all the time. But you can only draw near the course and the in the faith. Brothers and sisters, if you're here and you're stumbling uh, to, uh, with something that you believe, I would challenge you to talk with someone about it because what you believe matters. And one of the reasons people drift away from the faith, not the only reason, but one of the reasons, is because of the doctrinal matters. You know, people, have you heard people say, well, I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. I believe actually that every religion has some kind of truth and it all leads to the same God. And so, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what you believe. But those kind of things begin to take root in, in a person's heart. So the admonition here is to hold fast to, to good theology. But that's just the first thing that we need. The second is to walk together in community. He says what we need is not only doctrinal, but also relational. Look at verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, in addition to having uh, holding fast to your confession to the things that is right and, and those beliefs is also the idea of being together, to spur one another on to love and good works. This is one of the things that we, we can't do alone, but that people oftentimes do try to do alone. You know, we are at an unprecedented point in American history where people think that church and being a member of a church and being a part of a church is not necessary. I don't need it. You know, people will say things like, well, I love Jesus, but I don't really love the church. You know, or I don't need to be involved in that kind of committed way to a local church body. And there's maybe a, a whole lot of reasons why people have low view of the church. That might be because maybe they were burned in a church. They were hurt by a church. It might be that it's inconvenient. I got a not, lot of other things going on. It could be. I think my family is the most important thing. I have a limited amount of time, so I'm going to invest all my time in the family. You know, you got people who right now, unfortunately, uh, are saying, you know, I'd rather just sit at home and listen on the internet to a sermon. And, and why should I listen to my pastor? Why not listen to R.C. Sproul or Tim Keller or John MacArthur or somebody else? They're a much better preacher, which is probably true, maybe, than, than your pastor. But the point is, and I'm not saying everyone who is watching on the internet has that attitude, but there are some who are falling into that trap. And they're saying, hey, why can't I just be in my pajamas and have my coffee and worship at the same time? Well, what's wrong is there's no community. You know, there's, there's no community. And, and he says in verse 25 uh, that we ought not to neglect the gathering together of believers. There was a, a, it was common at that time 
for the believers to avoid the gatherings of, of Christian believers. And he's like, if you're going to persevere, if you're going to continue on in the faith, you must be with other believers. Um, you know, unfortunately, in our culture, we have sort of an individualistic, frontier, renegade type of American way. It's not necessarily the biblical way, but it's like, I, I, I can do it myself. And our passage here tells us that there's some things that you can't do alone, that we can only do together. I, I love um, Paul Tripp's um, title of the video that he does on sanctification. He, he, uh, it's uh, entitled, now I'm going to lose the title, uh, a community, uh, your walk with God, a community uh, effort. And uh, that's true. Our walk with the Lord is not individualistic. It's something that we do together. But notice what he says here. He doesn't just say that we need to be together as Christians. We need to gather for, for Sunday worship. But, but here it signifies, really in this text, a, a, a conscientious care and a wisdom over the spiritual state and welfare of other Christians. You know, when, when he says, uh, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. He's saying, you know, I'm responsible for you. I'm responsible for you. I'm responsible for you, but you guys are responsible for each other as well. It's not just the shepherds, not just the elders that are to care for the flock. But as, as believers, well, we are uh, responsible for, for one another. Uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ are members of the same family. We have a, a tie far nearer and dearer than any earthly tie that we have uh, in this world. And we must consider not only their relations, but their circumstances and their trials and their temptations and the infirmities and the needs that each other has. We must seek grace. Uh, we must seek grace to be of service and help to each other in our time of need. Look at the person across the aisle from you. Do you know them well enough to know what their needs are? Do you know how to pray for them? Do you know where they are in their walk with the Lord? Do you know what they need to help stir them to fellowship? Maybe there's people you look around the church and you say, I haven't seen so-and-so in weeks or in months. Now, it could be they might be in the back room. Granted, I understand that. But they also may not be here. And does that weigh upon your heart? Do you think, I need to contact so-and-so? I haven't seen them in a long time. Here's that sense. Part of the grace that God has given to us to help us to continue to draw closer to Him and to persevere in our faith is each other. He's given us the blessing of, of us uh, encouraging and, and helping one another. And so he says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's the goal of, of Christian fellowship, to strengthen zeal, to inflame affections, to excite others to godly living. We are to provoke one another by means of godly example, by suitable exhortations, and by unselfish acts of kindness. Brothers and sisters, that's what the Lord has called us to. And... He has given us the privilege of not only the confession of our faith, 
uh, but also uh, the community with each other as well. So let me ask you, what is your church commitment today? I'm not asking you uh, simply about your attendance, but I'm asking you, what is your commitment to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Uh, it, is, it is necessary, it is imperative, if we are to walk together, uh, that, or if we are to stand firm, that we walk together as brothers and Christians, Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, are you considering how to stir up others in the church and the love and good works that they might draw near to God? I would encourage you this week to prayerfully consider that and say, Lord, help me. Open my eyes. Help me to see how I can encourage others in the church and stir them up. And then, of course, I just want to mention in closing, but he says, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, Jesus will return at any time. And he calls us to encourage one another and also in light of the fact that Christ is, is coming again. So let us take these things to heart. Let us think about these things and walk in these things that we might all, that we might all draw near to him and enjoy fellowship with him. Please bow with me if you would this morning. Jesus, for the grace that, that you have given to us in not only offering yourself, but Lord, that you have given us uh, your word and the confession of our faith, that we can stand firm uh, knowing the truth of what is right and what is real. But Lord, we also thank you for your wonderful grace in giving us each other to come alongside and to encourage one another. Lord, I pray for the person this morning that may be here, that may be struggling. Father, I pray that, that you would help us to see that, to, to come alongside. Lord, we, we have all, I'm sure, benefited from those who have loved us enough to inquire into our lives uh, and how we're doing, uh, how we're getting along spiritually, things like that. May we all be such people to one another that we might spur one another on to love and good works. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.